Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Shelly Kittleson. Shelly is an award-winning journalist and an El Monitor columnist who has reported from the ground across the Middle East and Afghanistan for the past decade. She has filed dispatches from over a dozen front lines of the fighting against the Islamic State in Iraq, including such difficult to access locations as under barrel bombs in Syria, from tribal areas on both sides of the Iraq-Syria border, and from Taliban besieged Kandahar. Shelley will talk with us about her reporting this summer from Afghanistan, what the return of the Taliban may mean for the fight against ISIS, including in Iraq, which is where she joins us from today. My conversation with Shelley Kittleson begins now. Shelley, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me. You were in Afghanistan this summer. You know the country well from covering it for over a decade. Let's start with your observations about the Taliban takeover. What are some of the trend lines you were seeing in reporting that the U.S. and others may have missed? And I I should ask even more directly, were you surprised at the speed at which uh, the Taliban took over? Um, Yeah, no, definitely. I spent about a month this summer in Afghanistan between Kabul, um, the eastern province of Nangarhar, and uh, then down in Kandahar. Um, I have been uh, to Afghanistan several times in the past decade. Uh, My first time was in 2010, and then um, various times over the years. Uh, when I went back this time, uh, yeah, of, of course, I saw quite a bit of fear among people that I had seen before, that I had talked to before, who were confident that they could beat the Taliban and, and this and that. This time around, of course, there was quite a bit more fear, but it it didn't feel like they were going to take over the capital that quickly. Definitely not. Um, it all started sort of falling apart in July, clearly. Uh, They took some of the border crossings. Um, Notably, they took uh, Islam Qala, which is near Herat uh, with Iran. It's a very lucrative border crossing. Um, And Iran did not seem very, uh, well, the country seemed quite happy about that uh, from at least some of my sources, what they said at the border. Um, They were expecting that to happen. Uh, The Taliban had actually been to a meeting in the previous days in Tehran. Um, It almost seemed like that had been in some way coordinated. Um, But yeah, and then they continued taking other border crossings uh, and Spin Boldak notably in the, which is in the Kandahar province, uh, was a massive uh, defeat for the forces there uh, because of the fact that also supposedly quite a few Pakistani even military came in, according to the locals. Now, I can't say, I have seen no actual proof of that. Um, a lot of the Afghan national 
army, defense ministry, officials, et cetera, continued to claim that Pakistan was heavily involved, that they were sending people in. Um, that even the governor of Kandahar told me that they were sending about 50 bodies with Pakistani IDs every day. Uh, and in that particular battle, um, there was a Reuters uh, photojournalist who was also killed and his body was mutilated before it was handed back. Um, so in any case, after that border crossing was taken, I headed down to Kandahar to try to speak to some of the people there, see what was happening. Kandahar being, of course, the uh, former capital of the Taliban regime. It's where Mullah Omar is from. Uh, Baradar, uh, who is now, uh, actually today, he's supposed to come from Doha, um, who is, is one of the Taliban leaders. He's, he's gone back down to Kandahar. He's actually from Aruzgan, um, which is a, a province nearby. Uh, but yeah, in any case, it's a sort of the spiritual capital of the Taliban. So I went down to see uh, what the situation was there. And there was um, quite a bit of fighting. I had heard in Kabul that a lot of the, uh, the army was not actually fighting. Um, we've heard that also from US officials that you know one of the reasons uh, that the Taliban came in so quickly was just because the, the forces were not fighting. Now, I didn't see that in Kandahar. Um, I, and every night there was fighting, you could hear it. Um, it started uh, after 6 p.m. The first night I was there, a cell phone service lasted until 10 p.m., which was the official curfew. Afterwards, it stopped suddenly at 6 p.m. Um, and that, from what people told me, was because they had uh, the Taliban had threatened the various cell phone companies that if they didn't uh, cut off the service before then, they would continue to bomb the... Um, various facilities, the, the, the equipment of cell phone companies, and they have lost a lot of money uh, in, the, in the current conflict. In any case, yeah. So um, in Kandahar, I did see uh, that there was fighting by uh, the locals, as well as especially a unit, uh, the National Directorate of Security Unit 03, um, which had people from other areas as well. The Afghan National Army, was there, uh, but I believe uh, from what I could see, it was more the local police that were doing more of the front line fighting alongside. Um, in, in some areas, it was the local police and some areas it was the National Directorate of Security, which is sort of an intelligence agency, but it's, it does fighting as well. Um, and I had several sources tell me that, uh, and yes, there's a call to prayer here, I'm back in Iraq, but, um, you hear that in the background. Um, so in any case, yes, there was fighting going on there. Um, and then um, I also heard from several people, uh, both in the capital who have relatives that are under areas of the Taliban um, and in other areas of the country, that there are groups with foreign fighters active, that continue to be active in the country, there most definitely will be people from other countries going there. Um, and we've seen obviously the foreign involvement, as I say, of Pakistan in some form and also Iran. Um, I've spoken to several experts who've said that yes, Iran has for years been providing weaponry to the Taliban. Um, there was one point at which they, some officials did say, okay, we're doing this to fight ISIS uh, when ISIS started becoming prominent 
uh, in certain areas of the country, most especially in Nangarhar, was where ISIS was uh, and still um, has quite a bit of a presence in Nangarhar and neighboring Kunar provinces. Um, and I went out to uh, Nangarhar prior to going down to Kandahar and I spoke to some of the people there and for a while, some of the districts were under the local branch of ISIS, which is the Islamic State of Khorasan province, um, ISKP. Um, but now it seems to have been weakened. But nevertheless, it does continue to conduct quite a few attacks. Um, but it's more sort of targeting individuals, like several uh, female journalists in the city of Jalalabad, which is the capital of the Nanga Nangarhar province, were, were killed. Does the Taliban have a constituency of, of support in Kandahar or elsewhere? And you mentioned in terms of external support, it's, it seems they were getting some backing from Pakistan and maybe even Iran. Um, in terms of, uh, sorry, external or internal support? I mean, they have both uh, to some degree. Um, Clearly, Pakistan has in some form helped, uh, but I don't know that it's to the degree that a lot of the political leaders and uh, defense ministry officials were uh, claiming. I'm not, I, I don't know, I don't have the evidence to see that. I do know that they have been, the, the, the Pakistani military have been involved in some form. Um, also clearly Iran, uh, but Iran, is probably only helping to fund factions near its border, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I'm not quite sure on that. That was something that I was looking into a bit. I know that uh, they are quite concerned with water sources in Afghanistan, and there are some dams which could potentially limit um, water going into Iran, and that does play a part. Uh, there are other, other reasons as well. Um, there, I mean, they're, they're, they've been becoming closer to the Taliban for quite some time. Um, even, uh, I mean, people just sort of make sort of a, quite a few assumptions. I see a lot of foreign analysts uh, thinking that Afghanistan is still the 1990s, that it's once again the Taliban taking over from the corrupt government and such. Um, they don't understand that the Mujahideen um, had you know divided the capital into different zones and were fighting each other uh, and it's a completely different uh, different atmosphere different different country than it was in the 1990s and those analogies are utterly inappropriate um, or they assume that because of the fact that the Taliban are uh, well mostly Sunni Muslims or claim to be Sunni Muslims, they do have some Hazar Shia, including some leaders within them, um, but that they are clearly a minority. During their time in power, their previous time in power, they did target uh, the Hazara minority group. Um, but in recent years, over the past decade, I would say, <laughs> they've become closer to Iran um, and even now, uh, yeah, they, 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 they don't have a problem with the Shia. Any attacks on the Shia community in recent years have been claimed by the Islamic State branch, the ISKP once again. Um, 
so you know, yes, the Taliban have, have publicly said even today they were posting photos of them showing Shia uh, religious ceremonies that they were attending them actually in the capital of Kabul. So they don't, they're making clear that they don't have a problem with the Shia community. Um, and that is most likely because they have got funding from Iran in some, some form and they've become very, very close. Former uh, Vice President Mohammed Mohaqaq is a Shia Hazara leader. He was one of the few, if not the only Mujahideen to remain in the country uh, during the reign of the Taliban. I interviewed him in 2012. Um, and um, yeah, no, he's in any case, he's, he's quite close to Iran. He goes there frequently. He's taken part in several uh, religious forums there at which he's incidentally praised Suleimani Qasem Soleimani, uh, who was killed by a US drone strike, as, as your listeners will clearly, as our listeners will know, um, in early 2020, January of 2020. Incidentally, when I was in Baghdad, um, Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mari al-Muhandis were killed by a US drone strike, which led to um, a flood of other repercussions. But uh, in any case, he has publicly praised Soleimani, the Fatameyoun, um, Afghan militias that were trained by Iran and sent to Syria. He has also, though, taken part in uh, conferences and, and talks in, in Moscow with the Taliban, um, and uh, including when he was part, when, when Ghani, President Ghani was against this particular, these, these talks, this conference, he went anyway. Um, so, I mean, this, 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 idea that the Taliban are still back in the 1990s is, is, is quite clearly um, wrong <laughs> uh, and quite a few things have changed and I don't think a lot of the foreign analysts have, have kept up with this very well. Shelley, um, what about the support within Afghanistan and perhaps uh, Kandahar for the Taliban? How, how deep is it? And what do Afghans in Kabul or Kandahar, I would assume it's regional, uh, expect from Taliban rule? Um, okay, now this is a question that is a bit difficult to answer because when I was there, it was under the government, it's a war situation. I did not go to Taliban areas to report from them. Quite a few foreign journalists did and it seemed fairly easy to do. Um, I did not because I didn't really see much new coming out of that sort of reporting and I wanted to do other things in any case. Um, so yeah, uh, of course, I mean, they couldn't have taken over the country if there isn't some support for them. Um, the country has a very, very high rate of, of illiteracy. I mean, less than half the people uh, in the country even know how to read their own language, whether that be Dari, which is mostly in the, in the north, or Pashto, I mean, it has two national languages, and those are, those are the, I mean, no, if less than half the population even knows how to read their own language, it will be easier to convince them of certain things, um, and uh, with such high rates of unemployment, problems with drought, um, other issues, you're, you're going to find, uh, and when you have external support in the form of money to pay salaries, you're go going to find uh, militias uh, recruiting these, these young men. Um, now, uh, 
in terms of the people in the capital, in Nangarhar, in Kandahar, when I was there in government-held territory, uh, many of them thought that there would need to be some sort of an agreement with the Taliban because just simply they had taken so much territory, they couldn't defeat them. So they said, okay, we're going to at some point have to come to a political agreement, but they're not abiding by um, the agreements that they made before to stay out of, for example, the, the provincial capitals. Uh, they, they, they attack them militarily, and this has been most definitely a military win. I mean, it has not been any sort of a political agreement, um, even if they did eventually negotiate with, with the leaders and were allowed to come in and take Kabul without, the, without major destruction of, of the capital, clearly. Um, but I think quite a few people at that point uh, felt that there was very little else they could do. Um, a lot of people do feel let down by their political leaders, but they feel very, very let down also by the US. They did not expect it to be as abrupt uh, as this has happened. And not only that, what I kept hearing was that, you know, the US forced us to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners last year. And some of these guys were key to some of the fights in which um, their, their, their brothers, sons, um, you know, died. Um, so they felt very let down by the US. The US convinced them to release all of these Taliban prisoners and then, and then left is what they felt like. So clearly they don't know who to turn to um, and they're being attacked by a well-funded apparently or well-trained or at least ideologically convinced group that claims to have changed, even though we don't, we're not quite sure of that. Um, so, you know, I mean, they just didn't know who to turn to, quite a few of them. In the areas that had already been taken by the Taliban, of course, some of the um, foreign journalists that I know, or even Afghan journalists that I know that have traveled to those areas, said, okay, the people said it's more or less the same, you know, that in, in rural areas, the, the, the changes, that you saw in Kabul or in Jalalabad, Herat, et cetera, Herat where you had more women uh, enrolled in university than men, you weren't seeing that in the rural areas. So for them, it didn't really matter. Um, but so yeah, it's, it's difficult to answer that question. Was there a lot of support for the Taliban? Among the people that I talked to, no. I mean, but now quite a few of those people also aren't answering their phones. I don't know if some of them are trying to escape. I've spoken to some of the Afghan journalists who are trying to escape. I mean, one, one girl was practically suicidal. I mean, it's not, you had a lot of people opposing the Taliban takeover, most definitely. I mean, uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists, I believe said today something like 300 cases they had assessed of journalists that should leave the country and they have hundreds more cases to, to look into, and which isn't exactly going to help, um, you know, for information purposes and, and what's happening in the country in the following years. If all of the journalists that have been trained, that have experience, are now trying to leave, what exactly are we going to know about what's going to happen in the country? Shelley, what about the Islamic State's relationship with the Taliban in Afghanistan? And I would assume Al-Qaeda also has continued to have good contacts with the Taliban. Um, yeah, uh, Islamic State Khorasan uh, province is, yes, they fought with 
the Taliban various times. There have been targeted assassinations on both sides, um, competing for power, mostly in, in the eastern provinces near the Pakistan border. Well, it's not actually a border. It's never been officially recognized. But in any case, the uh, line between Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, or it's never been locally recognized. Um, Yes, they fought, but the problem is also, as one journalist told me, who's, who's from Kunar, where there is a presence of both, um, Al-Qaeda has always had very close relations with ta the Taliban. There's the, the, it's never stopped. Uh, Al-Qaeda also occasionally has relations with, with ISIS. Taliban and ISIS now that's something that we haven't really seen too much um but what we do see is that i mean when isis wants to carry out an attack it's not like the taliban so far has stopped them from doing that uh let's see if they do once they have you know control of areas as the government was um controlling those areas. yeah i i mean that's something difficult to see whether the taliban will have direct uh, relations, whether they will come to some sort of an accord with, with ISIS. With all of the blood that has been shed between them, I would see that as a bit difficult, but at the same time, um, more study needs to be done, I would say. Uh, at this point, I can't really answer that. But yes, Al-Qaeda is definitely there, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And as I said before, I mean, uh, some former members of Al-Qaeda that are from Iraq that are now in Idlib, you know, I mean, they've been praising the, the, the Taliban, the Taliban takeover, um, you know, that this is the, the Islamic paradise that, you know, people should go to and such. So we're definitely going to see that as an area that they will flock to um, and that there is likely to be very little information coming out, especially without Afghan journalists there. Will foreign journalists be allowed in? Will they be allowed to report independently? I sincerely doubt that, um, but we'll see. We'll see. At this point, everything's up in the air a bit. Shelley, let's turn to Iraq. You have covered Western Iraq and Bar Province as closely as any journalist. What is the extent of the ISIS presence and capabilities in those regions based on your firsthand reporting? Um, in terms of the Islamic State um, in Iraq at the moment, uh, its, it's, it's, its capabilities have been degraded quite a lot. But yes, they are continuing to attack, to kidnap, um, and kidnappings bring in quite a bit of money for them. Um, they seem to be asking larger sums. Uh, they continue to operate, especially in the disputed areas, which means the areas that both the Kurdistan region of Iraq and the Iraqi central government claim as theirs, um, which makes for, at times, uh, areas in which neither security force really operates properly, let's put it that way. There have been quite a few attempts. Uh, there's an, there are ongoing attempts to coordinate better uh, but we'll see how that works. Um, and also another problem is that, you know, I mean, I've been told by some, um, like Sheikh Jafar from the from, from Kurdistan region of, of Iraq, uh, that um, the, what they consider to be their border, uh, which they want to fight 
to have as, as part, of, part of their idea of uh, what Kurdistan should be is the Hamrin Mountains. Now the Hamrin Mountains um, are very rough terrain um, and they are a historic hiding place for insurgency groups that date back to before, um, before ISIS, before even Al-Qaeda. But um, I've been to these mountains, I've reported from these mountains before uh, initially uh, and I believe it was the first time was 2017 or 2016. 2017 was when um, clearly ISIS was declared defeated in Iraq. Um, but I had been out with the local police uh, when they were still fighting for um, Hawija, which is on one side of the, the mountains. Uh, um, I'd been with the local police from the Salahadin province um, which is, of course, Saddam Hussein's native province is Salahadin, it's a central province. Um, there, this mountain chain, the Hamrin, uh, stretches from the Salahadin province all the way to the border with Iran. Um, and I had gone a few times with with the SWAT team and then with the local police, one with the local police commander who was later killed in an IED attack nearby. Um, and I mean, it's, it's difficult terrain. You, uh, there are so many tunnels. Uh, once when I was out with the guys, two of them were injured by, you know, ISIS shooting from tunnels. Um, so, I mean, it's those kind of areas, the, the rural rough terrain in which you will see ISIS hiding out. Uh, I don't know that there are so many cells in cities any longer. I, I really don't think so. Um, but that's been the case for quite, quite some time. Anbar, which I have, yes, as you say, covered quite a lot. I was actually the only Western journalist allowed to go with the Iraqi uh, army. Um, on the operation to retake those, those last two cities in Iraq, which were Al-Qa'im and Rawa, the last two cities that were under ISIS. Uh, and yeah, no, I've, I've covered that area quite extensively. I've, I have very good contacts among both the, the, the tribal uh, figures there and various other people. Anyway, um, there isn't as much ISIS activity there now. Um, there are other issues there. there. Of course, it's still desert area. So uh, you will see in the Southern part, you'll see near Rutba a bit more of ISIS activity, but you won't see that so much any longer near Al-Qa'im. Uh, Al-Qa'im on the other hand is an issue uh, in terms of the Qatayb Hezbollah and other, uh, armed groups which are close to Iran. Um, there are conflicts between them and the local community, uh, as well as clearly there's the route to Syria through that border. They cross into al Canal. Um, and it is an area which has been bombed before uh, by the US and, and potentially others. Uh, so yeah, you don't see ISIS operating as much in the Qa'im area or in the Euphrates River Valley area, but you will see it to some extent near Rutba. Um, so, so yeah, uh, so yeah, it's mostly the, the disputed territories do, I think that they are inspired by the Taliban uh, victory, uh, absolutely, but then that would be any group, any, um, quote unquote jihadist group uh, would be inspired 
by this. Uh, uh, even though I don't know, I mean, some people have said, okay, the US was not defeated, it just got tired and left, you know, it just didn't want to have to deal with it any longer. So it's not actually, you can't consider it a defeat, but that's not the way they look at it. They look at it as having defeated uh, what most people consider the most powerful nation in the world. Um, that's how they see it. So clearly it is uh, a tool for further recruitment. Absolutely. Shelley, we're running out of time and I want to ask you about your work as a journalist, especially your commitment to covering what might be termed very difficult beats. We talked about Western Iraq, Ambar province, Afghanistan, living for years in the region. And there's a woman journalist. And does that affect your work or does it affect it not at all? Um, you know, I get asked this question at times and it's, it's, it's difficult for me to answer this. I mean, I, I, I think that being a woman in general is quite difficult in this world. I don't know that... I mean, being a woman and being a journalist is better than being a woman and being quite a few other professions. Um, I mean, it's, I at least, yes, there's obviously, there's quite a bit of, when you travel alone as a woman anywhere, you are going to occasionally get harassed, that, that happens. Um, sometimes people think that you are, um, not as intelligent as a man would be uh, or not as sharp, whatever. So they might actually be more willing to talk to you or not pay so much close attention to what you are, uh, to what you are listening in on, if that makes sense to you. So sometimes it can actually be quite good. They aren't, I mean, clearly also being any, being a Western journalist in this part of the world, you're automatically going to be uh, considered a possible spy. Uh, that's just the way that they think. Um, most of the people that have known me for a while uh, and know how I live <laughs> absolutely know that that's not, that's not true. Um, people that I've known for years will occasionally, however, tell me that initially they thought I was a spy until they saw, you know, I'm scrounging, I don't know, I mean, um, uh, places to sleep here and there because, you know, I mean, as a freelance journalist, so it's quite difficult to, to survive I mean, in these days. But yeah, no, um, in terms of being a woman journalist, uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's really been a problem. Occasionally, some people will want to protect you more um, and that can prevent you from doing your job sometimes or prevent, not prevent you, but make it harder for you, make it more time consuming for you to have to push and convince them that yes, I can actually go to that front line. I'm a woman, but okay, but I know how to do this. You know, oh, look, I have this card for my hostile environment training course. Look, I have a trauma kit. I know, I know how to do these things maybe better than you. You know, I mean, it's difficult sometimes and it can be quite time consuming and exhausting to convince them that, um, I can do certain things uh, and, and of course there is always the issue of harassment but that's not limited to working in these types of areas. I, I would say actually when I was in Mosul in the battle for Mosul uh, with one, uh, with one ex exception uh, which uh, I won't talk about now but in any case most of the time the soldiers treated me once they saw that I could 
you know, keep up with them, that I could run over rubble as much as them, and that I was willing to put myself in the same sort of danger. Um, they treated me much better than when I went back. It was kind of a shock when I went back to Baghdad and, and again got, you know, occasionally harassed along the street uh, because I had got so used to being in Mosul with these guys treating me as one of them, you know, because I used to spend weeks with um, uh, federal police on a federal police base. I, I, I slept on the base, you know, and I went out with them to the front. Um, so yeah, um, does that answer your question? I'm not sure. Sure. Uh, and I'd be interested, what would your advice be to early career young journalists who are just getting involved in international reporting? Learn languages is, is the top one, uh, because even if you have the money to have a translator, which many times if you're doing freelance work, you simply won't unless you have another source of funding. Um, you will miss out on a lot. I mean, translators are not 100% perfect and sometimes they have their own agenda um, and you learn a lot by listening in to other people, um, how they speak to each other, what they say to each other. Uh, and knowing Arabic has helped me quite a lot. Um, so yeah, that's, whereas I, for example, do not speak Kurdish. I mean, I know some words, but I don't, I don't speak uh, any of the variants of Kurdish, which is, uh, which I find it difficult therefore to, to work as well um, in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. But I have a lot of contacts here. I know a lot, of, a lot of people who speak English. I've been out, I mean, even in 2014, I was out initially with the, with the PUK forces down in um, Jalalullah and then, with a general who uh, is seen as a hero now, actually General Hussein Mansour. Um, I was out on the front with him. He was killed a few months later in Kirkuk by a sniper. And then with Sirwan Barzani in uh, Black Tiger camp uh, in Mahmoud. Um, so I've, I've been out on the fronts with the Peshmerg in various, various places, but not understanding Kurdish has, has been difficult to, um, uh, yeah, just, I mean, languages is, is a top one. What else would I say? Um, go, go to the place. Uh, don't do WhatsApp and, 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 and just WhatsApping sources who someone has given you and you might know, not know who these sources are. Uh, know the people that you are quoting, if at all possible, uh, because clearly if someone especially from dangerous areas. I mean, I've seen some journalists, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that when Dera Zor is, which is a Syrian, Eastern Syria uh, and a region that I know fairly well. Um, I saw some journalists reporting from Istanbul and Lebanon and were just calling sources that other people had given them, which I understand that it, it was a very difficult area to get to. But when I found out who some of these people actually were, um, it made, uh, yeah, no, let's just say it's you always know if at all possible, the person that you're speaking to, that's, that's, that's my advice. <laughs> um, don't just WhatsApp them. Don't just call them over the phone. Um, many of these people will have an agenda. Some of the people will not even be who they say they are. Um, so to do reporting well, go there. But you know, I mean, the most difficult thing for reporters now is simply money. Financially, journalism is very, very hard. Um, and 
with some publications, I mean, I'm being paid less than I was a few years ago, uh, and my expenses are more. I mean, and so I mean, for example, I have a second job, so that that is something that I always find it difficult to explain to young journalists that you know, if you choose this job, make sure you find a way to financially support yourself. Really, that is my advice. <laughs> Shelley, that's. Fantastic advice. And this was a great conversation today. I learned a lot and I appreciate your taking the time. And I thank you for your many contributions to O Monitor. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. We will be back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest, Shelley Kittleson, and to our production team of Phil Calabro of Al Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other All Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.